Hello and welcome to Tesserai. I'm Stephen Cartwright. And I'm Bob Stevenson. And we would be honored if you would join us as we attempt to explore the integrated Christian walk in light of the ways it has been dismantled. In our own ongoing discussion and examination on race, our emphasis has primarily been pretty black and white, pun intended. Now, I think there are reasons for this, one of which being that Bob and I are white and black, respectively, but also because it has arguably been the most volatile and historically persistent of all racial relationships in the U.S. That potential understatement aside, there is a Native American perspective, a Latinx perspective, an Asian and Asian American perspective, and so much more. And so today we're talking with Ray Chang, a friend and coworker of mine at Wheaton College. He is also a co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative, which seeks to engage Asian American realities from a biblical perspective of justice and shalom. They hope to create a space where Asian American Christians and friends can collaborate on issues surrounding race, culture, and faith. Now, if you want to hear more about this, you can check out their own podcast entitled Reclaim, which just wrapped up its first season. Thanks so much for joining us, bro. Oh, it's great to be here with both of you. Appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Just to give us a little bit of background, we've been talking about race in the church, and I'd love for you to give us some context on uh, the Korean American church, um, or at least your experiences in it. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I'm Korean American, second generation. So my parents uh, immigrated here in uh, the late 70s and early 80s. And um, and so I was born in the United States. But I've, I've only known um, the church uh, since I was since basically since I was born. And so I grew up in the church. I grew up in a predominantly uh, immigrant led church, immigrant dominated church. And um and found that that was the place that, uh, as many others would have experienced as well, uh, both uh, the the legacy and uh, doctrines of faith were passed down, uh, as well as uh, my ethnic identity as a Korean and a Korean American, uh, as well as uh, cultural ways of being. And so it was a very contrasted experience from my Monday to Friday where I was in either predominantly white or predominantly black uh, spaces, uh, living both in the north side of Chicago and in the south side of Chicago. And it was the space where I really learned how to be a be both a Christian and be be Korean American uh, and and navigate that reality. And so um, many great things come out of it. You know, I think, uh, again, like I said, it's one of the places where uh, culture, uh, ways of being, knowing, and doing are passed down uh, from one generation to the next. And as someone who personally is eighth generation Christian on my father's side, and I think seventh generation Christian on my mother's side, which is extremely rare for many people, but it's exceptionally rare for for Korean Americans. Um, it was a, it was such a, an important part of my life and my being growing up. So it sounds like while being a Korean American has been a big part of your cultural identity, you haven't always been so vocal or knowledgeable about race, though, right? Um, so what what kind of prompted that growth, if I've got that right? Yeah, so I mean, there, there's tensions between being uh, first generation Korean immigrants to the United States and then obviously being a second generation Korean. And so uh, navigating and trying to figure out what it meant to be Korean American was a big part of my upbringing. Um, let alone what it meant to be Asian American, right? And so uh, Korean American is an ethnic identity. Asian American is a racial identity. And uh, because I was in spaces that were either predominantly white or predominantly black, 
and really didn't have a imagination or a kind of a, a, a space in the imagination for uh, Korean Americans or Asian Americans, I had to figure out what it meant to be a Korean American in those spaces or and, and not know really what it meant to be an Asian American in those spaces. And then had to learn what it mean to be a, meant to be a Korean American in a predominantly immigrant dominated church right and so i had no idea what it meant to be korean american because most of my uh most of the things that kind of shaped my koreanness were either immigrant korean experiences and perspectives or like korean korean kind of perspectives and and i and ideas and so um there really wasn't any like mentor that said oh this is what it means to be korean american uh i just knew what it meant to be korean a korean in america and then I had I had an idea of what it meant to be either white or black. And then it was only until it wasn't until I've met other people that kind of had walked the journey, you know, ahead of me that navigated the second generation Korean American realities. That I learned how to do I learned what it meant to be Korean American. So that's that's one piece. But I haven't been as vocal or knowledgeable about race uh, growing up because I think as with many Asian Americans, we're incentivized to stay silent or to even be ignorant on issues of race, right? We're, we're called to understand our ethnic backgrounds to some degree, uh, kind of keep it in our spaces, but not let it leak out. And then uh, more incentivized to assimilate into largely whiteness or kind of like a white dominant kind of psyche or, or, or community. And, and so there really wasn't any, um, Kind of prompting for me to interrogate you know my my surroundings to question the broader communities around me to question the 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 even even to question why it was there was such a stark contrast between my uh immigrant korean church and my predominantly white or even black elementary school or junior high school um and that was because i I saw the immigrant church as a foreign entity in this country, which, you know, has a lot of layers that need to be unpacked in, in, in and of itself. Um, and then never understood really where the Asian American kind of uh, realities um, emerged or kind of took, took, a, uh, took form. And so uh, there really wasn't any understanding or awareness of race, um, probably, you know, uh, and, and very little ability to articulate the experiences as well. Because, you know, like, if you think about like the, the black experience in America, I, one of the things I regularly hear from, uh, from black people is that they have the talk with their kids, right? And that talk is about what it's like to be a black person in this country. There's none of that in the in, in the in the Asian American community in a, in a lot of Asian American communities unless they have a race consciousness, which is really rare. So in the majority of, uh, of Asian American communities, especially if they're Christian, mostly if they're Christian, um, there is an almost like a suppression or a denial or um, a distancing of anything that has to do with race, which means that we kind of live in, we live with an experience of, of race without being able to articulate what it, what it actually is like and have no language for it. Ray, I'm curious, when you talk about there being sort of a suppression um, of those concepts, those ideas, is that internal or external or a combination of both? I mean, so they would say it's, it's it, so it's probably primarily driven externally, 
right? So the the external forces are my parents telling me not to take uh, when I would ask if I could take Korean food to school, my predominantly white school or my predominantly black school, um, not to take Korean food because it's going to uh, ostracize me. It's going to lead me to be ridiculed because it smells differently than what they're used to. And I mean, for me, there's there's plenty of food in the kind of the white category and the black category that I don't particularly appreciate. But you know what? It, it's something that I've had to grow accustomed to. It's just that 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 hasn't been reciprocated in a lot of in a lot of settings and spaces. And so, um, so yeah. So a part of it is external, and then the other part is what you know many people would call internalized racism, right? When you keep hearing that, you know, people tell you not to bring that part of you to a particular setting or place, then you're like, okay, so that, that there's a problem with that part of me. There's probably some issue with that, that I, that, that I'm not really understanding. And clearly it's not as valuable as, as, as everything else is. And so um, you start either disliking, uh, being apathetic or, or even hating those parts of you, which is why a lot of Asian Americans especially Asian American Christians. And I, and I think it's Asian American Christians tend to be, uh, tend to assimilate more than non-Asian American Christians, but you know, that's another conversation we can have as well. But um, yeah, so there's an internalization of kind of the racism without ever really identifying it as such. So there's both internal and external factors. That's really helpful. Um, I, I, I think um, considering those internal and external pieces help to under, um, help us to understand sort of the complexity of racism in America, that it's not just, um, uh, well, you know, a lot of times when people think about racism, they have Jim Crow in mind and, uh, it's kind of the, the old school KKK racism, but, but really it's so much thicker and more complicated than that, which leads to another important question. Um, what, um, we're kind of talking about these constructs of otherness. You talked about assimilation. You talked about, you know, even uh, different foods and such. Um, and and that, in, in order to really think about otherness, we have to talk about whiteness. Um, and so how would you define whiteness, especially, you know, it, it's kind of a hot button term, right? In evangelicalism, I suppose, uh, just like everything race related. But how would you define whiteness and why is it important for us to really understand racism uh, in a healthy way? Yeah, so whiteness, um, a lot of people will misunderstand whiteness and completely com- uh, just conflate it with white people or people only with white skin. And I think that's the furthest thing from the truth. Anyone can buy into whiteness and, and, um, uh, and can, anyone can adopt it. Uh, whiteness is, is, is essentially a stratification. It's, it's the creation of a hierarchy based uh, on the construct of race that there are superior races and then inferior races. Obviously, there's, you know, there are a lot of people that are, um, that, that will deny that they, operate in this way, uh, which is really interesting for me to see, especially as they hold the same logics and ideologies and views and kind of positions as, uh, as those who, uh, who would even vocally claim to be white supremacists. Um, but whiteness is essentially the categorization um, 
and and the valuing and the valuation of uh, of different people based on arbitrary features factors um, like skin color or facial features or now as we're seeing kind of um, uh, adoption of uh, certain ideologies uh, that perpetuate unjust aspects of a racialized status quo um, that leads to the, you know, the, the, the problems that we're seeing along race. And so that's how I would define right, whiteness. I want to talk a little bit about multicultural churches. So I think you and I have discussed this a little bit in the past, Ray, but um, coming out of college, I had opportunities to work in a few different churches. Um, it was my first time working in like predominantly white churches and uh, different denominations. And there were three different multicultural cultural churches as they call themselves, you know? So in actually attending them, I found them to more accurately be called multi-ethnic churches, um, where, you know, if you took a picture of the congregation, you might be like, wow, like everyone is represented here, or this is clearly like racially diverse, ethnically diverse. So we're good. Um, but I, I kind of felt it was more accurate to call it multi-ethnic and monocultural just because, just because there was still one dominant culture. Um, and it kind of took, in my opinion, from my perspective, a lot of assimilation in order to be a part of that culture. Um, but I'm curious to your perspective on that, because that is a hunch, but I obviously haven't attended every multicultural church. No, I think you're right. I mean, you know, the conversations that we've had, I think are we're on the same page. You know, when we distinguish between multicultural and multi-ethnic, it's you know, it, it, you could have a, a variety of kind of uh, compositional diversity um, and and still really have only one way of living, being, worshiping, you know, that 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 either demands you kind of assimilate or fall in line or you just don't belong. And I think that's that's challenging when you're not talking about essential um, kind of aspects of the faith, you know, core doctrines that we all hold on to. Uh, and uh, elevate cultural expressions to the level of orthodoxy, like many have done with, for example, the worship wars. Right? They they would say that you can't really be Christian unless if you are playing rock music in a church. You can't really be Christian if you dress a particular way. If you don't wear a suit to church, you're not really X, Y, and Z. And they, they create these kind of uh, what Glenn Bracey would call theological tests to see, which are actually more racial tests, uh, to see how much you actually fit in, um, even though you might hold the same theological convictions that they do uh, around, again, like the essential aspects of faith. I'm going to jump in here. Talk, unpack that for me. Uh, how do those become racial tests? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> So I, you know, when you go to uh, the continent of Africa, you'll, you'll see that there's been a lot of missionary activity, you know, so the gospel was preached, but it wasn't just the gospel that was preached uh, alongside, you know, the good work of building hospitals and schools and things of that nature. Obviously, with some issues uh, of education being a little more colonial than it is, um, quote unquote, liberating. Uh, and we both work at a liberal arts college, so we, we believe in a, a liberal education in that sense. Um, but one of the things I've I've seen consistently, and it's not just in Africa, it's throughout the continent of Asia. It's pretty much where anytime uh, Western missionaries uh, landed somewhere, they would they would not just tell people, um, 
you know, th- here's the word of God. Here is what it says, you know, read it for yourself, uh, kind of chew on it, you know, reflect on it, pray through it. Uh, they would also say, and if you preach it, you have to wear a suit. It makes no sense if you are in, you know, a hundred degree weather in the scorching sun, preaching outdoors to wear a suit that, you know, that, 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 that just basically is, you know, uh, that makes you sweat in places that you shouldn't be sweating in. Right. And so, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And so, you know, I, 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 I always thought, oh, this is a form of reverence. This is what I always thought. It's, 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 it's in part that at the individual level, but at the systemic level, it's actually just colonization, right? It's this, it's this forced uh, um, adoption of a way of dressing that really has, you know, that, 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 the, that the scriptures don't call us to, that, you know, that the, the gospel doesn't demand. And, um, in order to be a citizen of the kingdom. And, and so, yeah. So, I mean, things like that is what I'm talking about. Now I want to, I want to push back just a little bit while I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say assimilation was as much a, a factor, uh, at least in my experience in growing up in the church, there was, you're right. You hit it on the nail on the head with the reverence aspect to it. But I think there was also like a, I think my, my parents might describe it. My dad being a pastor, like as a, a, a level of respect for even like oneself in what you didn't have. So like the roots of the holiness church, you'll see that, you know, even down South and wearing these suits. And I think that came because you also had a lot of people who were sharecroppers. You had a lot of people who were having these different experiences, but uh, didn't have wealth, but to be able to give God your best was a part of reverence. But I think it was also kind of connected to self-respect a bit. Yeah, no, and and I th- that's why I intentionally was trying to push it towards the African continent or to um mm. to the Asian continent because I think you know the the reality of slavery is that it devastated people, right? And so, you know, you you look at how slaves were clothed, you know, and you look at how the plantation owners were clothed and it does something to your mind. It does something to your sense of kind of self and so when when you have the ability to purchase clothing and uh bring that your sunday's best you know is you know there's a reason why you call it the sunday's best or at least the african-american community you know tends to call it the sunday's best for a reason because they're they're literally offering their best to to god and you know and so that's i try not to when i when i use this example i try not to bring in the african-american experience even though I do think that the deprivation and the dehumanization would lead to one wanting to kind of wear whatever is perceived and uh, valued as the highest form of garments or clothing uh, and, and offer that to God. And so, and in some ways, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a byproduct of white supremacy. right? So I want to um, maybe zoom out a bit Um and think about associations or, or denominations. You just wrote an article for Christianity Today about the exodus of black pastors and churches from predominantly white associations and denominations. And you were targeting the SBC um, in particular because of the the recent kerfuffle over there. Um, so there's been a movement toward um, 
you know, like we talked about multicultural churches and trying to increase diversity in denominations or associations. Um, but from where you sit, do, do you see an irreversible trajectory away from, are we breaking apart? Are we segregating? Um, or, or are you hopeful that we can do better? I mean, as someone who believes in, in the gospel, right, that, you know, it, that Jesus was able to overcome death and damnation, there's always hope, uh, even in the, you know, in the, in, in the worst of circumstances. Um, if I was a betting man and didn't believe in God and was looking from the outside in, I would say that there was no hope, right? That's, that's just kind of the way it looks. Uh, 400 years, you know, uh, of, of particular treatment and views towards black people. And uh, they continue to show up to, to this day in a variety of ways because the way whiteness works is that it, it adopts and it adopts the uh, it, sh- it adapts to the current context, right? And so it, it seeks to maintain a certain level of um, dominance uh, and the ability to dictate the terms. Um, but you know, I, I wasn't trying to target the SBC. Instead, I was just using it as a heuristic to kind of highlight things that have been happening for decades, oftentimes. Uh, leaving in, in in its wake, you know, a, a bunch of people that just get bruised, damaged, and 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 beaten down, and nobody hears about it. Um, sure. Nobody knows about it. I mean, to the point where you know, people are. We have to have these conversations as uh, as Christians of color to figure out okay, how do we stay sane in these spaces? Uh, in fact, uh, Ruth Bentley. Uh, who's who's a trustee emerita of uh, of 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 Wheaton College uh, wrote a handbook for Black Christian college students, um, and and the the subheading was how to stay sane in in predominantly white Christian institutions, you know, and it's like why do they have to even write something like that? Um, and this was in the '70s that she was writing this, or '60s or '70s, I think I believe. And she found she she and her husband founded um, you know the National Black Evangelical uh, Association, and so you know I think that this has been happening for a long time. You know, social media and uh, the fact that people are talking to each other about it is changing the game. Um, you know, a lot of people would basically stay silent about it and just kind of keep it to themselves, uh, not even seeking help uh, from. From therapists or counselors, uh, but now they're doing that. And then they're also not trying to disparage anyone. You know, this is why I try to leave names out of um, anything that I write because I I have no desire to to even write stuff like this. It doesn't it doesn't give me any joy to um, to 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 highlight stuff that you know that 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 people are doing. But I'm also having conversations with real human beings on a regular basis that are in churches led by pastors shaped and influenced and educated in these seminaries and um, impacted by, you know, kind of the, the priorities that they set and, um, and seeing the same patterns emerge, not just in the SBC, but in other denominations and, and the main and primary uh, point of similarity, you know, is that it's they're you know, that they're plagued with whiteness and you, people have to understand that whiteness is a issue of racial hierarchy. It has nothing to do with one skin color, really. It's been defined historically when, you know, 
a lot of people, when they look at things from an individual perspective, they'll only see whiteness and they'll equate it to my skin color. And so if you are white, then you are X, Y, and Z. No, it's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's the adoption of an ideology that, that maintains kind of white hegemony and white dominance. And so, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think that it's impossible, but I think that some significant reflection and serious repentance is going to be required, uh, you know, and we know repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart and a change of direction, right? And so um, the way things have been going are, you know, regardless of how satisfying uh, some people have been, uh, especially from the dominant white majority, um, you know, most of the time it's it's this weary um, kind of... Uh, weary watching that pe people of color oftentimes and Christians of color oftentimes have to do in order to say, okay, I'm going to take another step forward. I'm going to take another step here and, uh, and, our, and I have to negotiate whether they stay or whether they go. And, and so I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I know that the, the SBC presidents and the, the kind of the black coalition within the African-American coalition within the SBC, um, at least at the time of, the, that we're recording are going to have a conversation. Um, mm. And I think that's tomorrow, um, but we'll see what happens. You know, I, I was texting with uh, Russell Moore earlier today and, you know, and, you know, he's, 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 he's someone that holds it together in the SBC. And I, I hope that more people listen to, you know, voices like him, but, you know, even as we're, as we're talking through things, you know, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll constantly keep his eyes on, on Jesus and say, you know, you know, like I've said this years before and he said that God doesn't need the Southern, need a Southern Baptist convention. He'll do the work that he does, you know, whether we are, you know, uh, working with him or not. And then, you know, he also said that an Exodus was not just the end of something, but the start of something too, you know, pointing back to the Exodus in scripture. And I'm just like, yeah, so encouraging. And at the same time, he's thoroughly committed to the SBC. He, you know, he loves the SBC and he wants to see it better. And, I'm sure that there are many others that are trying to be faithful, but you know there are a, there's a contingent of people that are in the SBC that seem to want to um, preserve a particular way of being that hurts many Christians of color in the you know in, in the process and uh, and as long as they get you know a dominant voice in the denomination, um, you know yeah. I, I don't know we don't know. I, I really appreciate your emphasis on hope um, and anchoring into the work of Christ as, you know, there's always hope. Love hopes all things, right? Um, we need to hear that because it can be so discouraging. And especially when we talk about things like whiteness, that for a lot of folks, a lot of white folks in particular, it feels like such a foreign concept, you know, even though we've been trying to talk about this for so long. Um and so the idea of trying to bring uh, large groups of people to repentance feels completely overwhelming. Um, but it's it's good to remember that there's always hope. I, I, will, I will say though that there is a difference between shallow hope and deep hope. And one of the fact, one of the fact, the hallmark, um, I would say, traits of whiteness and white evangelicals is this kind of perpetual need to get to hope quickly and a, a satisfaction with a shallow hope, right? And so I definitely don't want to 
I'm I'm not talking about that type of hope, right? Where we're just it's just it's like false positive, you know, happy go lucky. You know, we're gonna sing kumbaya together. Everything is gonna be okay. Right. You know, hard work is not necessary. True repentance isn't uh, required. Not I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this deep seated hope that um, that keeps people going, whether they're in or out of what we call white evangelism. That's a good distinction. Also, for our listeners, just want to note, if you are not familiar with the SBC, we're speaking about the Southern Baptist Convention. So kind of let's let's go from here. Let's jump um, towards that hope, I suppose. Um, I don't know if you've run across this article. In 2007, Peter Chaw uh, wrote a piece called Doing Theology in a Multi- Multicultural Context. Um and uh, he argues that we need to reconceptualize how we do theology and develop frameworks for social justice. Um, he, as a sociologist, he leans on uh, social theorists, he leans on theologians, and he argues that while social location is not everything, it really does matter. And our theology should be this integrative endeavor that takes into account um, uh, people from all kinds of different backgrounds. This strikes a chord for me because this podcast is really all about living the integrated Christian life. And so the idea of um, bringing in voices from different locations, different places um, to help us to see the whole pictures is really important. So let's just sort of do a thought experiment here, imagining a perfect world where this could happen well. Um, You know, we opened with your experience in uh, the Korean American church. What are some key contributions um, that that the Asian American church, for example, uh, could make to this integrative task? Yeah, I mean, that's that's I think that's a really good question, right? Because we're you know, we a lot of times when we talk about race, you know, we focus on what's been taken away and not what has has can be added or has been contributed. You know, I think the most clear thing especially with the korean american church is the the whole idea of of korean style prayer and a prayer life that i don't think really is matched by any other kind of racial group uh, as a whole but you know specifically with with ethnic group i mean koreans are known to pray um my grandmother just passed away and you know like there's not a time in my life as I was growing up, when I woke up in the middle of the night because of my little bladder as a little kid and I had to go to the bathroom at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. And when I would walk by her room, see that her door was slightly open, um, that she wasn't praying with the Bible, you know, open in front of her. That just, I, mean, I just never saw her asleep because she took the scriptures so seriously that she said, you know that that when when the scriptures told her to stay awake and and stay alert and pray in the, through the night and things like that, she that's what she would do, and I I can't I, I can't even calculate and I and I sometimes wonder what the impact of her prayers have been for my life. And this is commonly experienced among many racial groups. Uh, you know, like uh, the black praying grandmother. You know, the the Asian praying. You know, the the abuela from you know that prays for their grandchildren. Um, but honestly, I, that's one thing that I just, I think is, is a rich legacy that, uh, that, um, that Koreans really kind of do, um, exceptionally well. I mean, you go to Korean prayer, you go to Korea and you go to the prayer mountains, you know, pre COVID and you would easily see thousands of people all 
uh, elevating their voices, as you you see in 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 the book of Jeremiah, to pray in one voice and lift up their voices and cry out to God together to intercede on behalf of 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 others, and it 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 becomes so palpable and so thick. The Holy Spirit's presence becomes so thick that you know, like that, as you go there it you, it kind of is uh, is like is an experience like uh one that i would imagine uh, the israelites had as they were uh singing the song songs of ascent uh moving towards jerusalem from everywhere they you know every, from wherever they were coming from uh and so i think prayer is a, is a significant thing i think community is another aspect right i mean everyone does community to a certain degree but one of the things i noticed over and over um is that when people uh, who are not Asian, you know, enter into Asian spaces, um, you know, usually with someone that introduces them into the space, uh, they, they experience a different type uh, and texture of community. And so like every, every, mm-hmm. every ethnicity, every racial group has a form of community, but I think Asian Americans just do it exceptionally well. Um, you know, it, I I think that you know like when I when I spend time with African Americans, one of the things I I think they do better than anyone else is really telling the truth, and so truth telling is a hallmark of the African American community in my opinion, and that's something that Asian Americans aren't necessarily the best at. You know, like we're really um, we, we tell the truth, but we do it at, at, at a lesser degree than uh, than, than than others might, and so. Um, so I think that everyone does community, but I just think that there's something about the way that Asians do it. Uh, it's just completely different. Like I, I go to a church and everybody is auntie or uncle, right? Like when I, when I, I, when I go to a white church, it's, it's Mr. Chang or pastor Chang, if I'm, if I'm there preaching, but if I'm at an Asian church, you know, unless they call me pastor, you know, they will always call me uncle and they'll introduce their kid children to me. And the first time I meet them and say, oh, this is Uncle Ray, this is Uncle Raymond, uh, you know, and then basically I'm automatically family. And, um, you know, that's just something that I think we do exceptionally well. You know, obviously there's other aspects, you know, uh, in which we care for one another uh, and, and the way that we do community bleeds into everything. But I think those are two major things that we do extremely well, pray and uh, do community. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And that that does remind me a little bit of uh, there's some features, some hallmarks that you're talking about um, experientially that remind me of like my church experience or even like from a family perspective. My dad talked about his grandmother always praying for him and praying that he was supposed to preach the gospel. And uh, I think she passed away when when he was really young. And uh, when you know it, her prayers came to fruition. But um, yeah, there's you're right about that sort of feeling it very palpably when you're in those places. Um, I think one of the things that I've been interested in that I've seen a lot and talked and learned even in conversations with you, Ray, uh, in a, on a Christian campus has been this model minority myth, uh, which is something that I've heard for years, but probably only within the last couple of years have I maybe seen it, seen its effects more at work, even in some of our Asian, Asian American students, um, some of my friends. Uh, And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that model minority myth and its potential harm to Asians and Asian Americans. Yeah. So the way that race works is that it puts us all, uh, well, it puts those who are racialized 
uh, minorities into racialized cages. Um, and I, this is something I've just kind of been developing on my own. Uh, but uh, one of the things I've realized is that, you know, these stereotypes really, cre you know, create walls in which we are confined to. They, they are the bars in which we cannot, you know, that we are, uh, we are trapped by. And so, you know, stereotypes for black people are that they are dangerous criminals, loud, you know, uh, they're thugs, X, Y, and Z. And that precedes them wherever they go. Right. It doesn't it doesn't matter, you know, you know what, you know, how educated you are. I mean, I remember reading this uh, this essay by someone who did everything right. You know, from, you know, he's black and, you know, he went to the Ivy League, got a law degree from an Ivy League. You know, I think he was a partner at a law firm. His wife was a doctor. They, you know, they bought a house in the suburbs. And no matter what, you know, no matter how how perfectly he lived his life, he would still get pulled over by the police. Right. So there's something about, you know, these hmm. these uh, racial stereotypes that just follow us. The model minority myth is just one of the one of the few prevailing stereotypes that really shape the Asian American experience. Um, the other is the perpetual foreigner syndrome. Uh, and then, you know, pretty much the majority of all other stereotypes um kind of fall within uh, these categories, uh, bleed out of these categories, or, you know, emerge as a blend of, of both of them. The model minority myth is essentially, a, it, it's a myth that says that Asian Americans are the minority group in which uh, uh, everyone, every other minority group should 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 kind of model after that's why we're called the model minority it was it was uh it was uh it was coined by i forgot the name he was a white guy in the 1960s i think uh and he was looking at the japanese community and seeing how how well they were doing and how well behaved they were and how hardworking they were and said that they must be like a model minority and um, what we don't realize is that in the framework of white supremacy, which is basically a, a framework that says that the white way is the right way. It's not just the KKK cross burning, you know, um, you know, let's lynch people type of uh, white supremacy, but it's the everyday type of white supremacy where um, white dominance is, uh, is preserved and protected. Um, one of the things that we that we see is that um, that Asians were used as a wedge uh, to disparage other communities of color, uh, simultaneously incentivizing while they were uh, as Asian Americans were incentivized by giving them, for example, a middle management role uh, in an organization. They would also be used to push down other communities of color, like uh, especially Black and Brown communities. Um, and so that's that's where the whole model minority myth comes from. But it's it's been internalized in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, and what it does, and and one of the ways it's been internalized is by um, making Asian Americans believe that the only way that we will succeed in this world is by falling in line with the expectations that the dominant white perspective. Uh, has on us or or imposes upon us, which means that we are we are not vocal uh, in the face of injustice. That we work hard, we keep our head down, we don't complain about things. Um, you know that that we remain uh, 
a, a neutral threat, you know, so that we're not really a threat. Um, that you know that we we stay in our lane, that we we never kind of push outside of it, you know, so on and so forth. But what that has done is it basically says, and then it, it, it's actually expanded to we're good at math, you know, that you know we are you know, scientists, engineers, you know, doctors, you know, X, Y, and Z. We're not leaders. Uh, that's a pretty common one that 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 spins off of the model minority myth. But one of the things that that's done is that it it turns Asian Americans into robots, and then it erases all of the injustices and inequities and the 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 pain and suffering of the Asian American communities. For example, most people don't know that uh, that the greatest wealth disparity in America is actually within the Asian American community. Right. You would assume that it's probably black or Native American or indigenous or even Latino, but it's actually among the it's, it's among the Asian Americans that the greatest wealth disparity exists. Um, there are significant mental health issues that plague our community to the point where, you know, that 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 seeking mental health services is is stigmatized and that people don't seek for help uh, and so on and so forth. And so there are a lot of issues that we deal with as, as a community that are invisible to the broader society. And that's primarily driven by the model minority myth. And especially when that's I, internalized, it leads us to um, kind of fall in line and fulfill the role um, and, and, um, and, and kind of submit to whatever is imposed on us. And so that's the model minority myth. And, um, and again, it's a myth, uh, which is why it's, it, you know, like there's a huge battle even among Asian Americans uh, around, notion, uh, around things like affirmative action um, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Those who have bought into the myth uh, tend to oppose affirmative action. Those who are aware of the myth mm. uh, tend to, uh, you know, tend to oppose it. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, that's that's really helpful because uh, that's coming from within sort of the Asian American community and it's seeing the effects of that from outside of it. So when William Peterson is coining this term, whether intended or not, it also seems that that can serve as a bit of a shield against questions of uh, injustice or inequity in the U.S., right? Because all of a sudden, well, clearly the system is not racist. Uh, America is not racist because you can be a person of color if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do what the model Asians are doing. Um, and so that f- feels like that has real effects, not only to Asian and Asian Americans, but also, but also uh, black and brown communities as well. Yeah. And one of the things that you're seeing is that, um, you know, historian Erica Lee will say that you know, Asians throughout history, Asians in America throughout history, Asian Americans, you know, they're always categorized in one of two ways. They're either good Asians or bad Asians. When we are good Asians, we gain more of society's rewards uh, and we live adjacent to whiteness, you know, which is basically uh, ba- buying the house that's right outside the gated community, but making you believe that you're in the gated community. Uh, but when we're bad Asians, you know, you see what happens during the, for example, the pandemic, you know, where um, 300, there was a 300% increase in anti-Asian racism uh, and violence that took place uh, since the since the COVID-19 uh, started, especially because uh, politicians were using words like China virus or China flu or Kung flu. And that led to hatred towards uh, Asians broadly because all Asians were categorized as Chinese people in the same way that all Asians were categorized as Japanese people during World War II after Pearl Harbor. And then, you know, 
all Asians again were categorized as Chinese during the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, which was the first uh, race-based uh, immigration ban in, in the country in the 1880s. And so um, we all get lumped together, and you know there, there are complexities within because you know then all the other Asians they say I don't I'm not Chinese, you know I'm Korean, I'm Japanese, and it, when when the Chinese are being targeted, when the Japanese are being targeted, everyone doesn't want to be identified as Japanese. But again, we because of the way that race operates, we really can't avoid it. Like I'm not Chinese, but I was called. Um, yellow piece of crap you know as i was as someone was uh driving by my house in march or april or may uh, as i was just sitting outside uh, reading a book you know because they saw my skin color saw my face facial expressions or my facial features and then you know, thought that you know because of the news or whatever they were reading or listening to whoever's tweets they were reading you know thought that i was a i was the problem man that's tragic well, Ray, it's been a real pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast with us. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing uh, out of the depths of your wisdom. Um, it's been uh, great to have you along for the ride. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Well, that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as always, we want to keep this conversation going. We find these are conversations best had with friends. So look us up on social media. We're on Facebook at Tesserae Podcast and on Twitter at Tesserae Podcast. And we'd love to hear from you what you found interesting, what you found uh, maybe challenging about today's conversation. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. That was Bob. I'm Steve. This has been Tesserae. Until next time. Bum, bum, bum.